The book of Romans is a very key book in the New Testament. For us as Christians and for the church to be able to understand what Jesus Christ has done for us, what he gave us of himself. And it also gives us a picture of ourself. And some of our songs this morning and during the weeks that we've been doing this series, we've been more introspective, looking into our hearts and what God is saying to our hearts through the scripture. Now, introspection can be negative, and so we sometimes want to push it away and not deal with it. But it also can be a very positive thing that God uses in our lives to bring us to a freshness and a newness seeing Jesus Christ. That's what it really is all about in our hearts as human beings. Our maker, we believe, our maker, God, knows us better than we know ourselves. And because of that, as our maker, he has given us the Bible to be able to, it's kind of like a, well, I was sitting yesterday with an engineer from Honda. He's just a neighbor of ours who we met. He's a mechanic, really. But ever since he was a young man, taking cars apart and putting them back together, and then going to engineering school, he's now one of the head engineers uh, for Honda here in the Kanto area. So we were talking about manuals yesterday, and I told him about my 41 Ford Coupe that I bought when I was 18 or 19. And the day that I bought it, it was an old car. It was a 41 Ford. And by that time, it was about almost, almost 20 years old. And the car was using a lot of oil and smoking really badly. I, I didn't pay a lot of money for it. But I had a friend of mine who hauled it for me, towed it, and I put it in my dad's garage and repaired it myself. In fact, by the end of the day, when my dad came home from work, he saw all these parts, the engine parts, all over his garage. And he says, Ron, you'll never get that back together again. Well, he didn't know his son. That was a challenge. Maybe he did know, and he wanted to really inspire me that it wouldn't sit around for six months on his garage floor. Within two weeks, I had it back and running. And I was telling my friend Daisuke yesterday, I said, there was no parts manual or anything to put it back together or even know how to take it apart. But we have a manual for our heart. It's the Bible. It's called the Bible. And that knows us and points out what's wrong and also what is right and which way to go. It's also like a, a map. It's better than Google Maps, <laughs> which directs our paths, and we carefully look through, and we can be guided by this book as well. So that's what it's all about. And that's the end of my lesson, and we'll have coffee now. <laughs> you know me better than that. I've got about 40 minutes to go here. Before I really get started, you thought I was already started, I'm not. 
Last week I was talking about when Katie and I were graduates of Bible college and then we got married and we were starting to have a family. And we were at that stage in our life where really we were looking to go to the mission field. But the Lord said, wait, wait, wait. And we'd waited a number of years and we were wondering at that point, there's something that we're missing in our life. We knew all the right answers, but there was still something that we were desiring. And I talked about the Holy Spirit and how some friends of ours had invited us over to their home group and we sat there and they prayed for us. And what happened to us didn't happen. In other words, nothing happened that night. At least for what we could understand, nothing happened. But in the next few weeks, our hearts were so hungry for God to do a work in our hearts. But, as I told you last week, I, I said that the Holy Spirit just came on us. But, you know, really what, what it is, I was thinking, Father, I need more of the Holy Spirit in my life. But I had received Jesus into my life when I was 11 years old. And the promise is that when we come in the name of Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit in our lives. The problem is not we need more of the Holy Spirit. We've already got as much Holy Spirit as we can possibly have. The problem is the Holy Spirit wants more of me. He wants more of us. And I think that that's what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. That we have given our lives. We've released our lives into his hand. And he comes in and fills up our lives. He's already there, but he's, he's got more of us because we have yielded more to him. Got it? And so that's really what I was trying to explain last week. And I think that this is what this part of Romans that we're going into is really talking about. And in the next chapter, we will be talking about the Holy Spirit a lot and understanding what it means to release all those things that are in our lives and let the Lord come in and fill us the way he wants to, the way he can, because we have him. We just have, like, I think I used this illustration once before. If you have a glass of water and you have rocks in it and the water fills up to the top as you put more rocks in, is the glass full of water? No, it's not full of water. It's up to the top, but the rocks have displaced the water. And so taking the rocks out is allowing more of the Holy Spirit to be in us, but not more in the sense of, well, he'll give us another filling. The Lord is with us by his Spirit. That we can count on because that's the promise of Jesus Christ and of the Father. 
Our outline this morning is going to be a little bit interesting. We're talking about the truth about sin. And we'll go through a simplified, logical reading of the book of Romans. And then we'll be talking about actually going back to Genesis 3, 1 to 7, and then going on to the account of Jesus being led of the Spirit into the wilderness and be tempted in Matthew 4, 1 to 11. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. This section of Romans, as I've gone on the Internet and looked up different commentators, every one of them that I read said, this is the most difficult passage in the New Testament to understand. After having wrestled with it, actually I started about two or three weeks ago looking at seven to get prepared. And the more I prepared myself, the more confused I got. And Katie and I sat down and wrestled with this and tried to get some understanding. What is Paul talking about here? Talking about being dead and talking about being alive and, and that sin was alive and sin was dead and the law was dead and all of this. How do we make sense out of this? Well, one of the techniques or tools that I use to try to understand a passage is to outline. Have any of you t- taken a, some kind of a sentence or instructions or whatever and outlined it and it made a little more sense? You know what I'm talking about, outline, outlining? Well, we're going to be reading Romans 7 in outline form. I've taken the liberty to outline it. So let's read it as an outline. Romans 7, 7 to 13. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good. So that through the commandment, sin became utterly sinful. Okay, if this didn't clear it up on the outline, then I'll have to go back through the outline again and we'll talk about that, okay? First of all, you you notice that I had A and B. So Paul is asking 
two questions. A says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? And B part is, therefore, did that which is good become a cause for death for me? Those are the two questions that Paul asks. Okay, so there's two questions he's going to answer. You've got to keep that separate in your mind. For the A part, he says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? And his answer, may it never be. On the contrary, Paul is saying his answer to the first question is twofold. He focuses on the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. As this commandment sums up all the rest of the Ten Commandments. In other words, coveting kind of fills out all of what the, the all the ten are talking about. So Paul goes to number ten because it kind of sums up what all the other ten are talking about. Coveting is at the heart of sin. Our human hearts learn coveting very, very quickly in our lives. I want that. The thing that your sister had. That's my toy. (laughs) Mommy, I want that candy. No, no, we're going home and we're going to have supper. I want it. I want that candy. And you've seen the kids. Little tykes. In the supermarket. Isn't he cute? Cute little thing. But what is he? He's a human being. He's coveting a candy he saw. He's wanting that. Have any of you seen What About Bob? It's a movie. Bob is a kind of a odd kind of person. And he... Uh, finally gets a psychiatrist that will deal with him. And the psychiatrist gives up on him. So he follows the psychiatrist to his vacation home. And the psychiatrist says, Bob, I'm on vacation. Go back to New York and take care of your problems. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. And Bob says, I need, I need, I need... Because of what? Because of his heart. He didn't have a friend. He didn't have anybody that understood him. And all of us are like that, aren't we? We can, we can acknowledge that in our hearts. Oh, isn't he cute? <laughs> he needs his mom. <laughs> At least he's cute about it. Paul learned that he was a sinner. He was a covetous, lustful person with many more kinds of lust that he hadn't even been aware of. This is Paul talking this way. Have you felt that way? And the law showed him that he was covetous. He says that he was still living his life quite nicely until he met Jesus Christ, the Word, on the road to Damascus. 
And Jesus confronted him and said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul was a nasty guy. He was going into houses, pulling out these Christians and putting them in prison, and many of them, I think, died because of Paul and his zeal for the law. He believed in the law. He lived by the law. But yet, when his heart was softened, and Jesus had encountered him on the road to Damascus, he realized that he was undone. Here was someone who was saying, why are you persecuting me, Paul? And as he received the law, he discovered the, the whole law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. God has it for us to be able to understand what sin truly is. That's why this message is called the truth about sin. We don't think of that, the truth about sin. We think that we understand what sin is. No, we don't. We don't understand just how sinful we are. Until we have an encounter with Jesus Christ that is so real and so pointed into our heart that only he and I know what is there. And that is that the law points that out. The basis of it is our covetous heart. The second question that Paul answers is quite an easy answer. Therefore, it says, did the good law cause my death? May it never be. It was sin that brought about death, not the good commandment, which pointed out how utterly sinful sin is. That's what Paul is talking about. And I, I would like you to go back over this sometime in your devotions this week. And try to understand what God is getting at in your own heart. And to open that up and allow the Spirit of God to have that part of your heart that you have closed up. Because we are basically the controllers of our own hearts. And we need to open that up so that the Holy Spirit can shine his light so that he has another place to fill. Let's go to Genesis 3, 1 to 7. We've got to understand the truth about sin. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. Kind of interesting here that the scripture says that the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. And we think about serpents and snakes like that, don't we? Have you ever been walking in the grass or in the woods and all of a sudden here comes a snake coming out of the, the woods? Whoa! You didn't even know it was there. 
this snake is a very crafty, crafty creature. Satan was impersonating a snake. He isn't a snake as such. He's an angel, a fallen angel. But he takes various forms. And particularly in this one, he is seen as a serpent. And because he is a liar, a deceiver, an impersonator, he doesn't show his real self. Otherwise, he wouldn't be a very good tempter. Satan rarely encounters us on a person-to-person basis. It is most likely one of his demons or demon spirits. Even his question that he asks here in uh, verse 1 says, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Well, that sentence reads a little bit more accurately, I think, in the Hebrew. It's actually saying, it's a question of, did God really say? Did God really say? So there's doubt. And then on top of that, he changes the sentence. He changes it from, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Is that true? Is that a true statement? You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? What did God say? You can eat from any tree. It says specifically in Genesis, you can eat of any tree that has fruit-bearing seed in it. So there was an exclusion that you could eat. Satan said, you shall not eat from any tree. That is not true. So all he was doing is, no, you can't have that candy. He was appealing to Eve's heart. And that question, and even entering in with Satan on that, is God really saying, is God really, and questioning God, brought into Eve's heart that desire to have. I think that God wants us to understand the the difference between our needs and what we want. Our needs are far above what we want in terms of priority. And oftentimes we don't get what we want. And so God is trying to tell us here that our desiring something is perfectly natural. But when God says, no, don't eat of this, that's what makes the difference. That is the law. And that was the only law that Israel or Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that's the only law that they had was that one law except for another one with Noah, but that was not a negative one. In fact, you can eat of the animals that you've taken on the ark. But this was the only exclusion that God had said. This garden is yours. Incredible. And Satan brings a question to this person, to Eve, that there's something else that you need. By Satan saying to Eve a lie, 
and an insinuation. What does she say? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. That last line there where it says, or touch it. Did God say that, don't touch it? He didn't. He didn't say, don't touch. He said, don't eat. But by Eve saying that, she's falling in with Satan on an insinuation. Insinuation means seeming to make God not fair or right. And so she agrees with Satan in this. We can't even touch it. Come on. All of us have done this. Your dad or mom says, no, don't, don't have a cookie right now. And so your little sister comes in and she's going to get a uh, cookie and you say to her, no, mom said we can't have those cookies and you're not even to touch it. Well, you're pushing off your sister to something that your mom did not say. She just said, don't eat it. But of course, naturally thinking, yeah, you got to pick it up in order to eat it. But she did say, or you will die. And that is the beginning of the end, or at least the beginning of a lot of trouble for us as human beings. The serpent then says to her, you surely will not die. So he's already got her in a conversation. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And I think that that is also appealing to us as human beings. We all want control of our life. We all want to be God of our life, so to speak. We want it the way we want it. And sometimes when we say, God, I'm giving you everything. I'll let you be part of my life. And you even become a Christian. And still, you want to reserve some things in your life for just you only. And God's asking for you to give up that. But we have that desire to control our life. That's the truth about sin. And Satan's retort is, For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And that's where we, we all deal with this, don't we? We all know this in our own heart, that we want complete control of our life. And that's the biggest thing for any of us to give up. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Shame, shame, shame. And we all live with shame, don't we? The enemy got her. 
We're going to turn now to another passage that I think we will understand how this works of Satan's temptations and how it's tied into sin that is in our heart, our life. By an example of Jesus Christ in Matthew 4, 1 to 11. Matthew 4, 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And he, Jesus, answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Kind of interesting to me that the Bible describes Jesus being led by the, by the Spirit. Jesus, I think, was a Spirit-led person. We talk about a Spirit-led Christian. That's what we should be, just like Jesus Christ. And the Spirit led him into the wilderness, but... The amazing thing is, and I don't think that this applies necessarily to us, the Spirit does not lead us into temptation. God does not lead us into temptation. And why did the Spirit lead Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil? Have you ever thought about that? I think it shows that part of God's desire to reveal the way a true human being, us, for instance, should be walking. We're going to approach, we're going to encounter temptations. That's the nature of the game here on earth. We're going to be tempted. And so, wouldn't it be better if we were spirit-led, the Holy Spirit was leading us, and all of a sudden, there's a temptation. I would rather do that than I just go on my my own and then temptation coming at me. Jesus is showing us this is the way to walk as a Christian. Being led of the Holy Spirit. And come what may, whether it's hardship or what it is, it is to prepare us to be able to handle Temptation And Jesus did not act as God here. And I've talked about the God card many times, so many of you know what I'm talking about when I say that Jesus didn't pull out his God card and say, ha, I'm God. No, he didn't do that. He walked as a man. In fact, we'll see that in this by the fact that he says, well, first of all, let's, let's take the point where this, the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now, what kind of a temptation was that for Jesus? Well, he had just finished a 40-day fast, or he hadn't even finished it. And do you think he wasn't hungry? He was hungry. And people that... I was looking at fasting this past week, and people describing their experience of 40 days of fast, 
what happens with your body is about at day three, which I want to be very honest with you, I don't know that I've ever fasted beyond three days. You know, fasting is not something that we delightfully want to do. How many want to be honest on that? I, I don't like fasting. I enjoy Katie's banana bread. <laughs> well, I enjoy all of her cooking, really. But fasting is not a pleasant experience. But as I was reading the accounts of people that were fasting and had fasted, they said it really has some incredible advantages to it. And there's some great stories on the internet, particularly uh, if you go to, well, ask me later and I'll, I'll tell you a <laughs> the URL for, for some testimonies on fasting, what it's about. But in reading those, they said that on a 40-day fast, what happens to you? Well, the first week, you're hungry. The second week, your hunger drops off. And your body goes into nourishing itself off of what you have reserve. I've got quite a bit of reserve here. So it, uh, it begins to utilize that part of your body. And then you really don't, you're really not hungry again. In fact, your intestine and your, your body is kind of shutting down a little bit so that you don't need as much. By day 40, however, what happens is your hunger returns. And it returns to a ravishing hunger. And in this one account, this person cautioned you, if you do a 40-day fast, be careful. It's dangerous for you, after 40 days of not eating, to just start eating whatever's there. You can even kill yourself by eating food that your stomach cannot process because you have to be able to do it slowly, coming out of a fast. So Satan is saying, see these stones? If you're the son of God, if you really are the son of God, make these stones into bread. Well, bread wouldn't be the natural thing that a person should put in their stomach uh, coming off a 40-day fast, for one thing. But he is the Son of God, and he will be able to make enough bread for 5,000 people. Well, somebody said the other day here, it was probably 20,000 people, counting the women and children that Jesus provided for. Jesus answered to him and said, it is written. And Jesus says that three times during this temptation. It is written. It is written. It is written. But the first one is man shall not live by bread alone. Who? Man. Jesus is answering Satan's, if you are the Son of God. Jesus isn't saying, I am the Son of God. He's saying, man shall not live by bread. He was taking our place. He was standing in our place, showing us how to overcome sin from the tempter. 
Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, again, questioning, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written. Satan was trying to quote his scripture or quote scripture out of context. Jesus says, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So we have Jesus here understanding the frailty of the human life and Jesus wasn't going to flaunt it. He wasn't going to follow the command of the enemy. The challenge Jump, jump, jump. You know, it's, it's a curious thing. Sometimes when there's a situation where a person's standing on a bridge or a building, this has been documented several times. The crowd watching a person ready to take a leap to death. What is the response of the crowd? Well, there's couple of responses. Some is, don't jump. But there's others who will say, jump, jump, jump. Incredible. There's that within us that plays with our life. And we know it all too well, don't we, here in Japan, where your train comes to a stop. Someone has jumped in front of the train. Our lives are fragile. Satan knows we're fragile. God says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, with the temptation... He will provide a way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. God is a God who knows our frame. He knows that we're dust. And he comes to our aid and help. And we need to know that and not flaunt it. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Imagine the scene that Jesus saw of all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And there was quite a bit of glory in those days. We've talked about that in terms of the Roman Empire. All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Again, Jesus allows himself to be taken to a very high mountain and shown the kingdoms of the world. Satan, again, is appealing to that human desire for power and riches and glory. Covetousness. 
or craving for power. To covet. Do not covet is the Tenth Commandment. You know, it's amazing to me that our political leaders these days bring such sorrow and evil on their people. And we keep on choosing leaders that are not worthy of leading us in the right way. Why do we do that? It's amazing to me. Yet evil men and women seek those positions. When are we going to learn as a people? Jesus sets the perspective right. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. That's where we really get the leadership. True, righteous leadership in Jesus Christ. God our Father. Following his way. Not wanting the glory or the riches or the power. But following our Father God. These two passages of scripture, Genesis 3 and Matthew 4, show us the very nature of our human weakness and our vulnerability contrasted with the life and the way of Jesus Christ. They also show us where our real source of help comes from. It comes from the Word of God and knowing the Word of God and how to quote it properly. We need the Word of God for our life and for living. Jesus is the Word. He is our Savior, our help, our Redeemer. He's the one that we need to acknowledge as our Redeemer. The one who will redeem us from our weakness and our brokenness and bring to us wholeness and health, wisdom, peace. This is a chart that I made up. Uh, might have some errors in it, but uh, it was made by me, so there would be probably some mistakes in it, but I've gone over it quite thoroughly. This is a comparison of the temptation of Satan, the serpent, to Eve and to Jesus, and how they are correlated there. Basically, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.